Hey friends, if you wish you weren't hearing an ad right now, then straight after you listen to this episode, head over to watchnebula.com slash not overthinking with a little hyphen thing in between the not and the overthinking. So watchnebula.com slash not dash overthinking. Through Nebula, you'll firstly get access to all of our podcast episodes ad-free. Secondly, you'll see exclusive content from me and a load of other educational-ish creators. And thirdly, it directly supports this podcast. So you'll incentivize me and Tame to record more episodes. My name is Ali. I'm a doctor and YouTuber. I'm Taymor. I'm a data scientist and writer. And you're listening to Not Overthinking, the weekly podcast where we think about happiness, creativity, and the human condition. Hello, and welcome back to Not Overthinking. Taymor, how are you doing today? I'm doing okay. I'm a bit tired and a bit sort of mentally and emotionally drained. So you're going to have to Ooh. take the lead on this podcast. Tell but... me tell, tell me more. This is music to my ears. Is it? Uh, yeah, just... there's. I mean, it's kind of stupid. I think it's mostly uh, external events have not really changed too much. It's more about like uh, internal story regarding those events. <laughs> and <laughs> my internal story regarding uh, regarding some events has been flip flopping <laughs> over the past few days. It's been it's been quite the roller coaster internally, even though externally, <laughs> like uh, it's all good. <laughs> yeah. what, what events are we talking about? I can't really go into it now, maybe in a few weeks. Oh, okay. Are we talking like personal stuff or like business stuff or both? It's work stuff. It's work stuff. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, um, that's me. How about you? So you've been flip, flip, flip flopping internally, Marcus Aurelius style. I didn't know he did that, but uh, great minds, I guess. Exactly. Exactly. No, I'm doing good. Uh, I had a, a moment a few days ago where I was saying to Sheen that I felt a bit overwhelmed. Really? And it's not really a word that I use very often. Um, but there were like lots of things piling up and lots of like, I say work things, but like, you know, YouTube type stuff piling up. And then part, part of me thinking, oh my God, the channel's going stale and these videos didn't perform very well. And really, what do you I, mean? Piling I realized up? Uh, piling up is in, system. yeah, we've got the system, but even with like the system, there was still a lot of like the idea behind our system is that I only have to film like once or twice a month and everything else is taken care of. Mm. But that is like an ideal that we almost never actually hit. And, you know, despite best intentions, we end up, it ends up being a mad scramble to get videos out. That's um, why you need to make like, what, two videos a week or something? Yeah. How hard can that be? Uh, I mean, it's not, it's not that hard. And I filmed two earlier today. So that's us sorted out, sorted for next week. Oh, okay. But it's like, because most, it's, it's like these last two weeks, basically all of my days have been taken up with back-to-back Zoom calls. And that plus the fact that I'm writing this book meant that I wasn't really making the time for YouTubing like I normally oh, would. okay. Yeah. And so it was nice having it kind of blocked out on the calendar today. It's being like, you know what, I'm going to film these like four videos. So I filmed two, made some progress on a third, filmed some shorts. And, you know, it's all it's a sort of work in progress. But it was just that point where I think like back to back Zoom calls, uh, plus having to also, but plus also wanting time for creative work. Yeah. It, like I needed more time blocked in my schedule. But it's so quite nice was, over the weekend. I did like a, the a five hour. Tell me about the, the over- feeling of overwhelmed was. I'm I'm not sure if overwhelm is the right word, but it was a feeling of I think similar to you, like external events not really changed, but internal story was was flip flopping. What was your and, internal story? Oh, I've got it so hard. I need to make two videos this week. <laughs> I'm sorry, I don't mean to make fun of it. What was oh. the internal story? <laughs> it doesn't matter. I don't I don't, I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. I'll leave, please. <laughs> the internal story was channel's going stale, you know, I'm, I'm now becoming irrelevant, the channel is, gonna, really? is, is, now, is now plateauing and is going to decline. I'd love to dig into that. Why do you think the channel's going stale? Like, how many subscribers are you on now? Like, what numbers are you? Yeah, what do you mean? Yeah, so 
like objectively it's probably not going stale it's just that the thing with with youtube is that when you when you log into the youtube studio homepage the the really like, like the numbers that you're confronted with is like your current subscribers and the change in the last 28 days and then yeah. your view you how many views in the last 28 days and watch time and revenue and then next to it you see a green or red up and down arrow with a percentage change from the last <laughs> 28 days and those have been like in the red for some time where it's like your uh, sort of subscriber growth rate is going down or something or yeah, so, so for example, we've had 65,000 subscribers in the last 28 days. But in the previous 28-day batch, it was maybe like 72,000 subscribers. I mean, that's not that much difference. Yeah, no, it's not. But it's just, okay. <laughs> you know, that's why objectively... You see a red thing instead of a green thing. Yeah, and also the way that, that, that it works is that it, you know, it, it tells you how your most recent video is doing relative to your previous 10. And I put out a video called How Writing Online Changed My Life, which was doing 10 out of 10, i.e. the 10th worst performing video out of the previous 10. And then... Crucially, I changed the title to How Writing Online Made Me a Millionaire and auto and immediately overnight that video started performing like ridiculously well. Oh, just well. because of a slight clickbaity title change. So that was nice. Yeah. But I think people have <laughs> So that was nice. <laughs> yeah, that was nice. Um it's 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 now on like two out of ten. Like it's it's absurd just how much it's climbed just 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 through that title change. Um but I think what 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 was happening was that now that we dropped down to two videos a week part of me was thinking, okay, let's try and make these two videos a banger every time. Mm. And therefore I switched away from my stoic mentality of, I will only think about the things I can control and moved more into, oh, I want, I want these videos to have high views and to be bangers. And when some of them weren't high views and bangers, I was like, oh, you know, this is, this is really annoying. And mm. the, the drive slash, even, even having a goal, having it as a goal that we want to put out banger videos was making me really procrastinate hard from actually filming these because I was like, oh, it, like, it just feels like such a... It, hmm. it felt like not fun to try and have this external metric that I was yeah, I yeah. was aiming at. And yeah, I, I had a chat with uh, one of my mates, Noah Kagan. He, he came on to our part-time YouTuber Inner Circle to do an office hours. And his vibe for his channel is very much that, look, I'm aiming for every single video to be a banger and to be better than the last. And I, as I was talking to him, I kind of thought, hmm... Okay, I'm I'm pretty sure that's not how I want to approach YouTube. But he had some compelling reasons and he was I got sort of caught up in his like he's he's very high energy and stuff. I was like, "Oh, you know what? Yeah. That sounds that sounds reasonable. I could try every video to be a banger. Yeah, let's do it." And for about a week, I was like, "Yeah, every video is going to be a banger." And then <laughs> for the next 3 weeks, it was sort of more of a, a trough of mm, this is this isn't really fun anymore. So now I'm kind of going more towards something that Sarah Dici talks about, which is sort of one one for me, one for them. <laughs> where maybe yeah once uh, once a week it'll be an attempted banger it'll be like a 10 productivity hacks yeah, yeah. and once a week it'll pandering. be something where yeah yeah pand pandering versus and like like for example earlier today i put out a video called how i play piano and sing at the same time which is definitely one for me like it was not going to perform okay. well and it's doing absolutely terribly but I'm like, you know what it's okay it's okay to have those sorts of videos it's all good that's interesting so are the bangers always measured by like view count or something rather than i don't know what you think is cool then yeah, basically. Is, is that what Noah Kagan is going for as well? Yeah, very much so. Um, but speaking of, of banger videos, we've got a video coming out on Wednesday this week, Wednesday next week called something like Advice to My 18-Year-Old Self. And guess who that video is sponsored by? Skillshare. Very good. And uh, guess, <laughs> guess what else Skillshare is sponsoring? <laughs> <laughs> Noah Kagan's videos. <laughs> Skillshare is also sponsoring this episode of the podcast. If you guys haven't heard by now, Skillshare is a fantastic online platform with 
thousands of online courses or classes rather from all sorts of topics from business and interior design through to cooking and art uh, if you click on the link in the video description or go to skillshare.com slash not overthinking pod and you're one of the first thousand people to do that this week you will get a free trial to skillshare and in that free trial you can watch like the eight online classes that i've got on skillshare two of them are about productivity two of them are about studying for exams one of them is about stoicism and how to be happier by changing the story you tell yourself about in, about external events um, and then after your free trial, the annual premium subscription is, is, is less than $10 a month, which is totally worth it. It's like the Netflix for online courses. I love Skillshare. It's great for learning stuff. So thank you, Skillshare, for sponsoring this podcast episode. And yeah, guys, click the link in the video description to check them out. How was that? That was fantastic. It was better than the last 10. It was one out of 10. <laughs> oh, yes. Thanks, man. <laughs> you know, the weird thing that YouTube Studio does when you when you log into it, if you have something that's one out of 10, and, it, and, and if it's a one out of 10 that is so outperforming, it actually animates fireworks on the one out of 10. <laughs> so you get that like genuine like dopamine hits of these fireworks coming out. Um, and then you screenshot it and send it to, and send it to your friends. Um, yeah. <laughs> there's, a, there's a really funny cartoon, which is often, I mean, it, it's often posted on Twitter to sum up Twitter, but it's, it's, like, a, it's like a diagram from a, from a science textbook. Also, there's a there's a really funny Twitter account called Science Diagrams that look like shit posts, <laughs> where basically they'll find like obscure diagrams from like science textbooks that seem like this is you know this is like a meme that someone's created <laughs> to like capture mm -hmm. or whatever. Anyway, there's 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 a classic one of like uh, a diagram of a monkey sitting in front of a screen, <laughs> and they uh they see some stimulus on the screen. Uh, and then they press a button on the on on some console, and then they get like a treat, <laughs> and that's always like posted as like this is Twitter basically, <laughs> and your nice. fireworks thing. See that? <laughs> really yeah, reminded me of that as well. Whoever, whoever thought of that as an absolute genius? I was like, it, it's, it's weird because in like in like December around Christmas time, I had so many. I had like three fireworks videos in a row. Firstly, there was like how much money I made in twenty twenty. And then there was like a, my insanely productive Christmas day. And then there was like, I was wrong how I set goals for the new year. And all of those were like one out of 10 with fireworks. And yeah. so I was like, I was over the moon in, yeah. uh, towards the end of 20, 2020, but <laughs> haven't had any one out of 10s in a while. Oh, that's funny. Um, so before we go into the actual uh, topic of today's episode, I wanted to chat briefly about a, a newish podcast that's taken the world by storm. Can you, can you guess which one I'm talking about? It's called the All In Podcast. It's now the number one. I think they started in like October. It's now the number one tech podcast. It's now like number 11 podcast in the world or something like that. Um, it's called the All In Podcast featuring uh, basically four very well-known tech billionaires who are all like best mates. <laughs> uh, it's Chamath Palihapitiya, uh, aka Chamath, is <laughs> how he's known. Uh, David Sachs, who found it was part of the PayPal mafia and then uh, founded Yammer, which then sold to Microsoft and now does a lot of investing. Uh, Jason Calacanis, who is also an investor, he, uh, he doesn't stop going on about how he was the first investor in Uber. Um, and then chap called David Friedberg, who founded a company called the Climate Corporation, which got acquired for a lot of money. And now he also does investing in random stuff. Uh, anyway, so these four billionaires, basically, they're all like best mates for a while. And I think they basically have, like, if you've, if you've heard Shamath on other people's podcasts, like uh, The Knowledge Project or Tim Ferriss or whatever, he taught, he, 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 he's mentioned a few times um, a while ago that, oh, you know, the thing I live for is that every Friday night, me and my buddies, we get together and we play poker. And that's like, you know, always happens every Friday, no matter what. So no matter what, what else is going on in our lives, 
where things are going like well or poorly, we're always going to hang out and play poker and it's going to be great. And I think, uh, I think this group is basically the, the poker buddies that he's mentioned a few times. Um, and yeah, I think, I think the podcast has just like completely exploded. I think first of all, because I mean, these guys are like super well-known, especially Chamath nowadays. Um, and so, you know, if, if, if four well-known billionaires start a podcast where they're hanging out, like, of course people are going to listen. But I think, I think the, um, I think the real reason is a similar reason, I think, why people enjoy this podcast and a similar reason, I think, why people enjoy uh, the My First Million podcast, which is that people enjoy basically authenticity. Like it's not, an, you know, it's not like an interview format podcast. It's for, for people who are really good friends, keeping it real, you know, joking around with each other, talking about stuff that they're interested in, all of that kind of stuff. Uh, and it's, it certainly feels very authentic. And I think like when I'm listening to it, I almost don't really care what they're talking about. I'm almost just like just listening for the vibes. I mean, it just so happens that it's generally stuff I'm interested in, like latest going goings on in like, you know, tech or business or general, like the world. Um, but it's really just about soaking in the vibes. It's, it's like, I think it's the same reason I, you know, people watch David Dobrik vlogs, you know, <laughs> it's just, it's a, it's productized vibes. And I think, I think the same goes for not overthinking for a lot of people where, you know, you and I know each other quite well, just kind of hanging out, bantering, you know, occasionally talking about maybe interesting stuff. But I think it's more about the vibes than about um, the actual topics and, and things like that. Um, so I think that's been an interesting phenomenon. And I've been getting in, into it recently. It's really good. Hmm. I will check it out. And we will, of course, link that in the show notes. And I realized that what do you use? What do you use for your podcast these days? I use air audio, but it's so buggy, man. It's ridiculously yeah, buggy. I know. It's really annoying. Like, I, I, I have this weird phenomenon where, and I'm, I'm, I'm sure I'm not the only one, where it's, it, it's like I know that air is the gold standard for listening to podcasts because, I sh because then I can clip things from them. Right. Exactly. But it's so buggy to the point, it's so buggy that it makes listening to podcasts an actively unpleasant experience. Therefore, since discovering air, I've actually listened to about five podcasts. Whereas before oh, wow. using, <laughs> before discovering air, I'd listened to about 500 podcasts that, 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 that year. <laughs> and it's like, I know that <laughs> I feel bad <laughs> listening to a podcast using something other than air. Yeah. A, because the guys are cool and I'm like, you, you know, been, been chatting to them online, but B, because I know it's the gold standard and I should, I should, I should be being able to take notes from them, even though I've never once ever looked at my air highlights from podcasts. Yeah, yeah I've never looked at my air highlights, mate. <laughs> I've never looked at them at all. <laughs> oh, but I wonder if they're listening to this. Appar uh, apparently the founders are listeners to, to of not overthinking. Oh, okay. Yeah, I've shouted, I've, I think we've DM'd on Twitter occasionally. I think we're, we're Twitter mutuals. Yeah, I want to, I want to support like a nice up, up and coming product. The concept is killer. The, the triple click on the professional AirPods interaction is absolutely killer. I think every every audio app should copy that. I wish Amazon Audible would literally just copy that interaction. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if they came up with that interaction, but every now and then a product comes up with something that is so good that it should actually just be copied. And that's their contribution to it. Like stories on uh, Snapchat, you know. Um, yeah, everyone should just copy the, the triple click to save the last 15 seconds. Anyway, why don't we get on to the actual episode? What are we talking about? Uh, we are talking about a discussion about the book, The Righteous Mind. We were meant to do this last week, but we ended up just waffling about, I, I can't even remember what it was. Um, uh, can you speak but, up, by the way, or like move your mic closer? Because I, I remember on last week's, um, at least on the YouTube video, your audio was a lot quieter than mine. I think it gets equalized on the um, on the podcast thing, but it doesn't on YouTube or something. Oh, interesting. Okay, this is this is better, yeah. Reminder to equalize audio for a YouTube video as well. Yeah. Um, so we are talking about The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt. Um, and 
I listened to this on Audible, so I actually don't have my own personal notes on it. But I'm actually using uh, an app called shortform.com. And in fact, uh, I'll put an affiliate link to shortform.com slash Ali, where you can get a free trial of this. This is actually sick. This is now like I've been I've, I've been chatting to the guy who 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 made this. It's like so much better than Blinkist. And they just give you decent book summaries that are like so they give you like a one page summary, which is slightly more detailed than the Blinkist one would be. But then in addition to that, they also have like detailed chapter by chapter summaries and they're all very well written. And it's just like their their like aim is capturing 90% of the value of a book in less than 10% of the words, fewer than 10% of the words. So I'm going to be using the short form summary of The Righteous Mind as like a um, kick on, kicking off point for having, having a chat about this. Um, and I'll just read out kind of the overview for you. Um, in fact, do you know what The Righteous Mind is about? Like what's your... What's I actually read The Righteous Mind a bunch of years ago. I remember, I remember really liking it, but I can't remember any of the details. Okay. I didn't, awesome. I didn't, I didn't have a second brain back then. So yeah. So, and uh, now that you do, you still can't. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Same. Um, in in the righteous mind, moral psychologist Jonathan Haidt explains why liberals, conservatives, and libertarians all have different understandings of right and wrong. He argues that moral judgments are emotional, not logical. They are based on stories rather than reason. Consequently, liberals and conservatives lack a common language, and reason-based arguments about morality are ineffective. This leads to political polarization. The righteous mind builds this argument on three basic principles. One, morality is more intuitive than rational. Two, morality is about more than fairness and harm. And three, morality binds and blinds us. And those are like the three sections of the book. All right. Um, so you know what? I'm just actually going to read this one-page summary and we can just... You can just interrupt me at various points, as, and and I will do so as well as we have we have thoughts. So, principle one: morality is more intuitive than rational. Morality's origins. To understand why morality is primarily intuitive, we first need to understand how morality evolved. The question of where morality comes from has plagued scholars for centuries. One of the most common answers is that morality is innate. However, the truth is more complex. In fact, morality is culture dependent. For example, for example, Westerners are unique in their prioritization of individual rights over the common good. The individualistic society in which Westerners live now is a product of the relatively recent enlightenment. In individualistic societies, the role of society is to serve the individual. However, most societies subordinate the needs of the individual to the needs of the group. They are sociocentric. Individualistic and sociocentric societies make different moral judgments. For example, in a sociocentric society, it might be morally wrong to move away from your family to pursue a promotion, whereas this is expected in an individualistic society. This shows that, contrary to what many people think, morality isn't innate. It sort of reminds me of the, I mean, like, often this is what this is what a lot of the kids stuff comes down to. That is your morality individualistic or is it uh, more sociocentric? Yeah, I think that's always like a, a tension. But I mean. <clears throat> I don't know if anyone would advocate. I would advocate for for like the extreme position of morality. You know, morality is entirely innate or entirely, um, you know, socialized. I mean, the point about moving away from your parents, it's a fairly nuanced thing. Where, yeah, understandable that it's socialized, but um, for more fundamental things like you know, killing people and stuff like that, um, I think it's you know, it's it's a little different, right? Uh, might quite, be yeah, yeah yeah we'll come on to the different moral taste receptors shortly i think that was like the main thing that i took away from this but i'm just kind of going through the the summary of the summary um anyway intuition and rush intuition intuition and rationality 
If morality is largely a cultural construct, do intuition or rationality play any part in moral decision-making? Yes, but their roles may surprise you. The human mind functions something like an elephant with a rider on top. The elephant, which represents intuition, makes, makes most of the decisions, guiding itself and the rider in different directions in response to all of the stimuli it takes in. The rider, or reason, can occasionally affect the elephant's path a bit, but it's mostly there to explain the decisions of the elephant after the elephant makes them. Moral reasoning is thus not a search for any empirical truth, as much as it is a method by which we justify our moral decisions. We only change our minds when people we respect talk to and appeal to our intuition. We'll listen to them because we are social creatures who are desperate for the approval of our peers. Essentially, we care more about others thinking we're doing the right thing than we do about actually doing the right thing. Uh, this, is, this is something that you and I have figured out whenever we discuss incest with our friends. Uh, as um, I certainly liked, liked to do when I was at university. A common topic, um, yeah. Yeah, fantastic topic. It's like, why is incest bad? Oh, well, it is. And then like, we have this gut response to the idea of incest being bad. And then we try and post hoc rationalize it away. Yeah. And when, those, when, when, when you can meet those rationalizations with reasonable objections, yeah. the, the response is always, oh, I, I don't know why it's wrong. It just, it just kind of is. And, you know, something's yeah. just wrong. And there's no way to kind of get past that <laughs> beyond yeah, someone but, being like, yeah. But, but one, th one thing I've come to is sort of, um, so I think a few years ago, I'd walk away from that sort of feeling a, a bit triumphant or, or whatever of like, oh, they're unjustified or whatever. But like at, at its core, like any, yeah, at its core, everything comes down to like moral intuitions. Like at some point, if you, if you unpack things long enough, regarding any moral issue you will reach a point at which someone says look <laughs> it just seems that way okay you'll 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 hit the bedrock of like this is just someone's moral intuition and and that's perfectly reasonable like with all of your positions if you unpack them enough you will hit the bedrock of moral intuitions like I, yeah i guess on the incest thing you can maybe convince someone that is it's actually like you know that their incest position is actually very inconsistent with a bunch of their other moral intuitions and so maybe it's worth thinking about but like i think i think in, in the past i used to think that there are some you know yeah i I, th I think i i sort of uh over overvalued or overemphasized the role of like reason when actually like all of this stuff eventually does just come come down to intuitions yes uh to an extent um i mean partly what this book is about in bulk is 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 about defining these six different intuitions that we have about morality and how the incest thing will play into one of them more likely or how you know various moral intuitions when you when you when you dig down into the reasoning with enough depth you arrive at one of these six taste receptors that where that particular moral moral intuition ticks oh got it i think i think it's still like obviously it still is useful to to question the especially because a lot of us like un, un, unless we like routinely read stuff like this, we probably think that our moral intuitions are reasonably justified. And so, for example, someone who thinks incest, who like genuinely believe, who, who believes that incest is bad, i.e., most people, until they're questioned about it, will probably think that their mm. hatred of incest is rational rather than you know just a moral intuition. Yeah. And sure, you go to a point where it's moral, but, but, but like you know, at at some point, people thought it was just a moral intuition that black people were super, like inferior to, to white people. Like you know, yeah, yeah, sure, people yeah. would have used that in the past. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. it's yeah. it's absolutely worth questioning these things. Yeah, but I, yeah, I was just trying to say that I'm uh, I'm more sympathetic to appeals to moral intuition than I used to be. Hmm. Fair play. 
Right, moving on. How we justify our moral decisions. The fact that we're social creatures is key to understanding why we make the moral decisions we do. We act morally primarily because we fear the social ramifications of getting caught acting immorally. We behave in ways we know we could justify to others if we had to. In this sense, the purpose of moral reasoning is to help us advance socially, whether by maintaining our reputations as moral individuals or persuading others to take our side in conflicts. Consequently, we think much more like a politician trying to win over constituents than a scientist looking for truth. Five examples prove this point. One, we are fascinated by polling data of ourselves. Experiments show that no matter how much someone says they don't care what others think of them, their self-esteem will plummet when told that strangers don't like them and will rise rapidly when told strangers do. On an unconscious level, we're constantly measuring our social status. The elephant part of the mind is concerned about what others think of us even if the rider of the rational mind isn't. Two, we all have a press secretary constantly justifying everything. In other words, we all have confirmation bias and are constantly on the hunt, like a press secretary, for evidence that justifies our way of thinking. Simultaneously, we ignore anything that might challenge it. Research shows that people with higher IQs can generate more arguments to support a viewpoint, but only for their own side. As soon as the elephant leans in a direction, the rider starts looking for reasons to explain it. This press secretary stuff as well, like in, in the actual book, this was stuff where I was like, oh my God, this is so true. Yeah. Yeah. I think this thing around like, <clears throat> yeah, being able, you know, being able to just like rationalize your own feelings. Someone told me this about a year and a half ago or something. I think he, yeah, he, he, um, yeah, I think he accused me of being in danger of just being very good at rationalizing my own sort of, uh, you know, whatever decision I sort of actually want to make, being able to come up with a, a good rationalization to tell myself in order to make that decision. Um, I, I, I think that's, that's a really big trap. Hmm. Three, we rationalize cheating and lying so well that we can convince ourselves we're honest. Like politicians, when given the opportunity and plausible deniability, most people will cheat, but still believe that they are virtuous. They cheat up to the point where they can no longer rationalize the cheating. In one study, when a cashier handed a subject more money than she was due, only 20% of the subjects corrected the mistake. Because they were passive participants in the transaction, they could, they could reconcile keeping the extra money with the belief that they were honest people. However, when the cashier asked if the amount was correct, 60% of people corrected the cashier's mistake and gave the extra money back. In this case, it was harder to deny responsibility for the mistake because the cashier directly asked them about it. Four, we can reason ourselves into any idea. If we want to believe in something, we ask, can I believe it? And look for reasons to believe. As soon as we, f we find a piece of evidence, even if it's weak, we stop searching and feel justified in that belief. On the other hand, if we don't want to believe something, we ask, must I believe it? And look for reasons not to. If we find even one piece of counter evidence, we feel justified in not believing it. In sum, unlike scientists who generally change their theories in response to the strongest evidence, most people believe what they want to believe. I 100% back this. Or maybe I, I want to. I want to. You want to. Yeah, you want to 100% back it. Yeah, I think th this just ties so much into the religion thing. Like, <laughs> anytime I try and... Or, or I feel like anytime anyone tries to take a evidence-based approach to religion you run into this thing very quickly of to what extent you actually want to believe the thing and yeah, yeah. then once you've made that decision you can find evidence for it one way or another um but yeah for sure fin finally five we believe any evidence that supports our team this is why people don't vote based on their self-interest rather people care about their groups political racial regional religious and base their decisions on their participation in those groups for example, when people are shown hypo uh, hypocritical statements made by political leaders in their chosen party, they start squirming and looking for justification. 
On the other hand, when they see the same hypocrisy from an opponent, they delight in it and don't attempt to justify it. Furthermore, when they're shown a statement that releases their candidate from something that looked hypocritical, they get a hit of dopamine. The brain of the partisan starts to need that dopamine. Being a partisan person is literally addictive. Um, obviously, in the, this is a summary of a summary. So the, in the actual book, they expand on this a lot. Um, I thought this was particularly interesting because until I read this in the book, I didn't quite appreciate this thing of people not voting based on their own self-interest. And certainly the people, a lot of the people that I knew when, uh, I think in 2016, when Brexit happened, when uh, the Conservatives got elected in the UK, a lot of my friends were absolutely baffled as to how this could happen and how it was predominantly working class people in the North who were also voting Conservative, saying that, but this this like literally goes goes against your own self-interest. Like, you know... <laughs> If anything, you know, to simplify a large amount of, 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 of nuance, Labour Party supports the poor and is a little bit more socialist. Uh, and therefore, you actually, you're actually better off if you vote Labour as a working class person than you are if you vote Conservatives, Conservative, yeah. which is historically the party of the wealthy. Equally with the whole Trump stuff, like, why is it that white working class people in middle America are voting for Trump? Why are some, like, ethnic minorities also voting for Trump? It's because of their group identity rather than individual self-interest. And yeah, there were so many bits of where I was just like nodding my head vigorously. I was like, oh my God, this makes, this finally makes sense. Yeah. Um, yeah. In response to this thing where I've, I've always been a bit like, hmm, about it for a while. These rationalizations don't lead or create our morality. Rather, rationalizations happen after we make decisions in order to justify our intuition and convince others and ourselves that we're moral beings. All right. Now here's where we start to get interesting. Um, so principle so we've done kind of the first third of the book principle number two morality is more than fairness and harm even once we know that morality is both intuitive and socially constructed it's natural to believe that everyone's morality is at least based on the shared principles of not harming others and ensuring fairness i.e your example of well when it comes to killing people you know that's kind of universally morally bad this section proves that actually groups around the world operate according to different moral frameworks and that we need to consider these differences when thinking about how to get along better with one another. Now, as an aside, um, there is... Have you come across this concept of weird morality, like W-E-I-R-D? Rings a bell. Western so something, we something, something. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, people yeah. who grow up in places that are Western, <laughs> educated, industrial, rich, and democratic, or weird, are significant statistical outliers. However, they are the subjects of the grand majority of social science research. This means that research gives us a narrow and inaccurate understanding of human nature, causing us to believe that weird morality is the normal or right morality. So again, Western, educated, industrial, rich, and democratic, which would probably describe most people who listen to this podcast if our analytics are anything to go by. Western, educated, industrial, rich, and democratic. I suspect most people who listen to this podcast cannot imagine voting Republican. Um, and so when, yeah... Like, we are the perfect demographic that a lot of the social science studies are based around. But, you know, obviously, <laughs> this combination of, of things is actually a, st a significant statistical outlier in the grand scheme of the human... Uh, sorry, I don't, I, don't th I don't think it means democratic in the sense of de Democrats versus Republicans. I think it literally means democratic in the sense of you live in a country which is, <laughs> on the face of it, a, a democracy. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think it means Democrats versus Republicans there. Yeah, I'm 99% I'm sure of that. Um, oh, that's odd. I read that as... Dude, come on. <laughs> Just think about it. <laughs> okay, yeah, you might be right. I, I, I need to re-listen re to this bit of the book because I read that. I, I, I heard that as being, oh, okay, Democrats at the time. But maybe that was my confirmation bias speaking. Um, okay, here we go. 
For well-educated secular Westerners, ethics centers around the harm principle introduced by John Stuart Mill in 1859. The only reason anyone should exercise power in a civilized society is to prevent harm. However, if you're living in a non-weird place, your morality is likely to be more expansive than just preventing harm and ensuring fairness. In weird societies, morality also sometimes extends beyond the harm principles, but it's more foundational in non-weird places. Rather than just the harm principle, morality actually centers around three types of ethics. One, the ethic of autonomy. This is the concept that people are individuals who have their own autonomous wants and needs. Societies develop rights, like the right to liberty and justice, in order to allow people to pursue their own individual wishes. This is the dominant ethic, as you might expect, in an individualistic society. Along with the harm principle, the ethic of autonomy is the foundation of morality in weird societies. But there are two other ethics that are strong around the world. Two, the ethic of community. This is the idea that people are first part of a group, a family, nation, team, company, and so on. These entities are important beyond the people who make them up. Moral concepts like duty, respect, and hierarchy are essential to this ethic. The idea that people should design their own lives is actively dangerous to the group and will weaken the social fabric. And three, the ethic of divinity. This is the idea that people are simply vessels of a divine soul. They are God's creations, and the intent of honoring God should guide their behavior. According to this ethic, sex with a dead chicken is morally wrong, not because it hurts the community or the individual, but because it dishonors the creator and violates the universe. The concepts of purity, sanctity, pollution, degradation, and elevation are particularly important in this ethic. People who believe in this ethic view in the per, uh, people who believe in this ethic view the personal liberties in Western nations as libertinism, libertinism because they often conflict with more orthodox religious teachings. This is another one that was interesting because I've I've come across this having sex with a dead chicken experiment before, and I could never quite Have you? square um, <laughs> in, in many contexts. Uh, I, I I could never quite figure out with the terminology I had before I listened to this book um, why this was like morally bad. Yeah. Because it's like, well, it, it's it's not harming anyone, and like the chicken's dead, so like, what does it matter? <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's it's like if 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 all you have is the 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 care harm foundation, like you know, thou shall not harm others. It's very very difficult to justify why that feels really 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 weird. But the ethic of divinity is like, oh okay, I was like, I know, I now have the vocabulary to explain why why this is a thing. Wait, Western what? Attempt I mean, uh, sorry, sorry, what? Like the ethic the ethic of divinity doesn't explain anything. <laughs> it's just saying that. No, quite. Just saying but, that, like things that we we don't like things like having sex with dead chickens. <laughs> there's no, there's no, no explanation. <laughs> the ethic of divinity is saying that there is a a strand of morality away, like that, that is actively separate from the care harm principle, which which involves purity, sanctity, pollution, and degradation, and those are the things that people are appealing to. The, the, those are our moral. Those are those are the the building blocks of our moral intuition about why having sex with a, with a dead chicken is wrong. Okay. Whereas before, before having that mental model slash terminology, I would have struggled to explain it because, because all I had was like, well, it's not really harming others. Therefore, why, why is it bad? Okay, got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Western attempt to ground society in just one principle, like preventing harm, leads to societies that are both unsatisfying and potentially inhumane because they ignore so many other moral principles. Additionally, it's hard to accept that, any, that another morality is possible or moral for example, a weird resident traveling to a non-weird place might have trouble understanding the ethic of divinity. This is part of what makes it difficult for us to understand one another. All right, now here we go. Here's the meat. Morality's taste receptors. Another reason people from different backgrounds have so much trouble understanding each other's values is that, in addition to the three types of ethics, 
The righteous mind has six taste receptors like a tongue. These receptors are the foundation of our personal moralities. People respond to these foundations in different ways, just like people's tongues respond to food differently. Here are the foundations. Number one, the care-harm foundation. The care-harm foundation prioritizes the values of kindness and nurturing. Humans have innate feelings of protectiveness and understanding of distress or suffering. This helps children to survive because their parents or even strangers feel the need to take care of them and makes groups more tight-knit, brought together by caring for one another. In the US, liberals rely much more on the care-harm foundation than conservatives. For instance, for instance, a liberal might have a bumper sticker with a message like Save Darfur or Peace or even Save the Planet. The care-harm foundation is part of the conservative morality as well, but it's not as foundational. For example, conservatives might have a bumper sticker that reads Wounded Warrior, when, which asks that we care for people who have sacrificed for the larger group. Um, I, I remember when I was listening to this book, like that on the, the, that weekend, I, w I went on a date with someone who I met on Hinge. This was like like probably a, a year to 18 months ago at this point. And we were kind of chatting about this stuff. And I, I brought up these six moral taste receptors because I was curious about, about this. And she was like, oh my God, like that, that first one, like 100% describes everything I care about in the world. Yeah. This was someone who had like, she, she was working for like a charity and she, she cared a lot about like helping the helping the suffering of like working class women in the UK and, and kind of women of color and, and all, all this sort of stuff. And she was like, oh my God, yeah, that is like, that is the reason why I care about, about this. Um, so this is sort of the foundational thing amongst liberals slash lefties, whereas conservatives slash righties care. They care about it, but it's like, you know, one of six as opposed to one of one for them. How did, how did this come up on the date? Um, I think we were, we were talking about books that we were reading or something like that. I was like, oh yeah, I'm listening to this thing called The Righteous Mind. It's really good. Uh, it talks about this and that. And it, it, it tied in because her, her work was all like charity. So I was, I was actually curious about what mm. she thinks of like, like, you know, do these six moral taste buds resonate with you? Oh, okay. Nice. Okay. Number two. So we've, we've talked about one, the Care Harm Foundation. Uh, two, the Fairness Cheating Foundation. The Fairness Cheating Foundation prioritizes the values of rights and justice. The left and the right are both concerned about fairness in American society, but in different ways. The left is often angry that the rich don't pay their fair share. The right argues that Democrats are trying to take money from Americans who work hard and give it to lazy people or illegal immigrants. Fairness is utter equality on the left, but proportionality on the right, i.e. people are rewarded for their contributions to society. Ooh. Oh, that was an interesting one. This is the one I ran. I ran past this girl as well, and she was like, "Yeah, that's that sounds very much like like her whole vibe was." Yes, of course, you want to, you know, take from the rich and distribute it to the to, to, to less deserving people in society. And how can you possibly think doing so doing otherwise is moral? Whereas I think sometimes when when we've spoken to Mimi about this, her morality leans somewhat towards proportionality, which is that look, people who work hard should be rewarded for their working hard, and people who don't shouldn't necessarily, you know, be, be, be rewarded from the people who actually do work hard. Um, and so, again, Fairness, Fairness Cheating Foundation is very interesting. Yeah. Okay, so those were two of the six. The third one is the Loyalty Betrayal Foundation. The Loyalty Betrayal Foundation prioritizes the values of self-sacrifice for the good of the group and patriotism. For thousands of years, humans created groups in order to fend off rival groups. This creates an intense and innate sense of loyalty within all of us. However, the left has much more trouble using the loyalty foundation to their advantage because they often disparage nationalism and sometimes American foreign policy. Because they admonish American policy, some conservatives see liberals as disloyal. Again, makes sense. 
I don't know many people at all who are pro-American follow-up for foreign policy, but I'm, sh I'm sure they exist. Okay, yeah. so those are three. Number four is the Authority Subversion Foundation. The Authority Subversion Foundation prioritizes the values of leadership, deference, and tradition. Cultures vary significantly in how much authority and hierarchy they demand. Authority comes with responsibility. People in a hierarchy have mutual expectations of each other. Those at the top are expected to protect those at the bottom, while those at the bottom are expected to serve those at the top. Again, it's easier for the right to adopt this foundation than the left, because the left defines itself against hierarchy and the inequality and power structures that result. Yeah, this this one's pretty good. I have a I have, well, we we actually have a mutual friend who, I think one of the biggest differences between him and me is that he is he's all about like submitting to authority, and uh, yeah, mm. and I I think that like on you can pretty much predict what things we disagree on because it always comes down to that. Okay, like for example, like I think I think his uh, his general view is very skeptical towards like you know, 21 year olds who decide to start their own company rather than, you know, getting 10 years of experience working in a corporate. And then, you know, once they know some stuff, then like, you know, doing their own thing, all, all of this kind of stuff. Um, and yeah, just generally like very, very trusting of, yeah, just like generally conservative and uh, trusting in the, the old, the traditional ways of doing things by default. And um being very hesitant to to question those or go against those sounds a lot like Mimi as well <laughs> yeah maybe like in terms of having uh, in 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 terms of large amounts of respect for institutional things for example like you know if you want to do this thing you should get the appropriate qualification from and degree from the appropriate institution of higher education yeah and yeah, then yeah. you can do the thing as opposed to the more modern lefty way of doing it which is i'm just yeah. gonna do the thing and i'll figure it out <laughs> along the way yeah um but that sort of comes to the authority subversion foundation so that was number four two more to go number five the sanctity degradation foundation the sanctity degradation foundation prioritizes the values of purity and sanctity this foundation is based on the idea that unlike mere animals we have a soul sacredness helps us build communities around a shared principle often that humans have a creator or creators who ask them to perform specific rituals to honor them and their creations Certain cultures are more likely to believe immigrants will bring disease or dishonor to their society than others. Certain actions are untouchable because they are too dirty, like drinking straight from the Hudson River in New York City, apparently, and others are untouchable because they are too sacred, like a cross for Christians or even the principle of liberty. American conservatives talk about the sanctity of marriage or the sanctity of life much more than liberals. Religious conservatives are more likely to have this foundation as they are likely to view the body as housing a soul. Yeah, I think this is one that, like, basically every, almost every religious person I know, uh, or, I, or, you know, with, with, with caveat, I don't like the word religious, but, but almost every religious person I know views, like, Western liberalism as being, quote, bad uh, because of this yeah. kind of, you know, they're, they're acting like animals, they're, like, having sex with whoever they want, like, this is not how humans were meant to live, like, we have, you know there is sanctity in like the human soul, human life, blah, blah, blah. We don't yeah. just want to do what the animals do kind of vibe, which kind of speaks to the sanctity, sanctity degradation foundation. Uh, but again, something that liberals slash lefties don't really use very much and therefore often find it difficult to understand. And Why don't finally, you like the word religious? Uh, I don't like the word religious because um, I, I, th I think mostly because when, 
if 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 people ask me are you religious it's like well how how do you want me to answer that um i i used to I used to get this a fair amount when i was at at, at university and it's like well uh I, I i guess so in some respects i mean i you know i do this and that but like uh, i mean i know a lot of people who are more religious than i am and i'm not sure to what extent i actually believe the stuff in my heart versus i'm just going along with it like there's a lot of baggage associated with oh, okay. identifying yeah, yeah, religious yeah. or not and so you therefore just don't like being I, I asked was, are you religious um yeah and I, I i think it's a like there's a lot of compression that goes into the phrase i am religious and whereas in reality there's a large amount of nuance associated with that and most, yeah, most sure. religious people would probably not want to would probably cringe slightly at the thought of identifying as quote religious um for all of those reasons that well you know <laughs> who am i to identify as like that anyway mm. the final one number six is the liberty oppression foundation the liberty oppression foundation prioritizes the value of and right to liberty we recognize legitimate authority but we want our authority figures to earn our trust we are resistant to control without purpose which can lead to a reactance when an authority figure tells you to do something and you decide to do the opposite. People band together to stop widespread domination and they may even and they may resist or even sometimes kill the oppressor. Biologically, people who couldn't recognize this kind of oppression uh, coming were less likely to th- were less likely to thrive. Oppression concerns both liberals and conservatives. Liberals are more worried about large systems of oppression that are helpful to the 1% but keep the poor without opportunity. Conservatives are more worried about the oppression of their own groups. They say, don't tread on me with high taxes, my business with regulations, or my nation with the UN and international treaties. Uh, I thought this one was, was also very, very interesting because as a, as a staunch lefty, obviously it's like the, my, my default mode of, of operation was like, like, why the hell does the US not sign these UN international treaties? Like, what the hell is wrong with them? Or like, right. you know, how can anyone object to, 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 to an extent before I became a business owner, I was like, how can anyone object to high taxes? Uh, because, they, because they help the poor. <laughs> Whereas, yeah, liberals are more worried about large systems of oppression that are helpful to the 1%, but keep the poor without opportunity. Conservatives are more worried about the oppression of their own groups. Um, and this, this section, this second section out of three, ends with, conservatives have an advantage in persuasive arguments because they can tap into all six of these foundations. They can talk to people with each of these taste receptors, whereas liberals concentrate significantly on the care harm and liberty oppression foundations, along with the fairness cheating foundation to a lesser extent. Their arguments are thus limited to a smaller group of people. Um, and I thought this insight was like very interesting as well, because in, in the book, he goes into like a lot about like, you know, this is what Obama said in his, or was it Obama, or the, the, this is what Obama said in his speeches to rally the Democrats. This is what McCain was saying in his speech to, to rally the Republicans, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. Obama was really only speaking to care harm and liberty oppression, because those are the only two, and to an extent, fairness cheating value, like moral values that liberals hold like dear to them whereas if you look at the conservative uh and the the republican speeches they sort of do a scattergun approach to all of them and so there are many more touch points for people to think oh my god yeah he's he's me and Mm. you know that stuff you know trump would appeal to sanctity sanctity degradation trump would appeal to loyalty betrayal trump would appeal to authority subversion which are very much things that conservatives think oh yeah yeah he's he's talking my language whereas like you know, on the left, we only have really two two foundations to appeal to. So I thought that was very, very interesting. That is pretty interesting. Anyway, principle number three, so three of three, morality binds and blinds. At this point, you might be viewing morality cynically, believing that humans are inherently selfish and that morality is primarily self-serving and blinds us to reality. We make decisions with our guts and then rationalize them so well that we think we made them using reason. We cheat when we think we won't get caught and then convince ourselves we're honest. 
We care more about others thinking we're doing the right thing than we do about actually doing the right thing. But this portrait of morality based solely on self-interest isn't complete. In addition to being selfish, people are also groupish. We love to join groups, teams, clubs, political parties, religions, and so on. We are happy to work with lots of others towards a common goal that we must, that, that, that we must be built for teamwork. We can't fully understand morality until we understand the origin and the implications of our groupish behavior and how our moralities bind us together as well as blind us. Groupish behavior. How did we become groupish? Darwin argued that there are multiple reasons human first banded together, you know, social instincts, the principle of reciprocity. If you, if you help others, they help you in return. And, you know, this, uh, for thirdly and most importantly, we developed a desire for social approval. People are concerned with what other people think of them and are, and are eager to find praise and avoid blame. People who lacked these traits were selected against because they couldn't find mates or even friends. Thus, evolution selects for people who act for the good of the group. Since Darwin's time, researchers have found further evidence that humans do have groupish tendencies um, and loads of you know, stuff about evolution. Um, and this ends with this, this idea that remember that while groupish thinking is part of our evolution, we are still mostly selfish and individual. We're about 90% chimp, who is self-interested, self and only 10% bee, who is group-interested. Um, then he talks a little bit about flipping the switch and how, uh, you know, we... Humans have the ability to flip a switch from being that self-interested chimp to working like a group-interested bee. We're only hive creatures in certain surroundings. There are probably times in your own life when you flip the switch from chimp mode to bee mode. Maybe when you're walking alone in nature and you feel removed from the temporal worries and connected to the universe. Or perhaps you experience a flip switch while you are at a rave, dancing with others together and feeling a shared exaltation. Lots of hive behavior, like dancing together, comes naturally to humans and serves to break down social class and difference. There are appeals to the hive all over. Successful corporations will make their employees' jobs specific and also make them feel as if they're contributing to the output of the company, thereby reinforcing a feeling of togetherness. Politicians also frequently employ the hive. Think about JFK's, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. The most successful nations are ones with lots of little hives that cross over within each other, with each other. Sometimes can be part of a family unit, a workplace, a sports team, sorry, someone can be part of a family unit, a workplace, a sports team outside of work, and so on and on. In contrast, nations with no hives, or those with huge hives, are, with one huge hive, are much more likely to break down. Then um, he talks about kind of pros and cons of groupish behavior. And here we go. There's some, some good stuff here about like um, political arguments. Despite their beliefs, our moral frameworks are, uh, sorry, sorry, despite their benefits, our moral frameworks are increasingly making us more blind to how others understand the world. Largely because of gaps in moral foundations, there's, a, there's significant evidence that America is polarizing rapidly, with the gap widening between political opinions on the left and the right. For example, liberals and conservatives in America have different foundational stories about the country. Liberals argue that there used to be dictatorial, oppressive regimes that governed the world, which virtuous people through, through time and effort overthrew. They, even, they then founded democracies and started fighting for equal rights for all, creating laws and government programs that could lift all boats. That's the liberal approach to the American origin story. Conservatives, since the Reagan era, say that America used to be a beacon of liberty, but liberals have attempted to ruin it by creating bureaucracy and tax burdens that stunt growth while also opposing faith and God. They took money from good, hardworking people and gave it to lazy people living on welfare while lionizing evil promiscuity and a, quote, gay lifestyle. There is significant value to the liberal understanding. It promotes a narrative of heroic triumph over the powerful through the weak banding together. In doing so, 
it often is in a better position to secure rights and material gains for the less fortunate in society. Nevertheless, liberals have more trouble understanding the concept of moral capital, defined as the resources that are necessary to sustain and grow a moral community. Conservatives argue that people need outside constraints to behave properly and thrive. Without them, people will cheat, and social capital or trust will begin to decline. Moral capital is what promotes these constraints. If we don't promote constraints like laws, traditions, and religions, society will come apart at the seams. A lot of left-wing policies fail because they don't seriously consider these constraints and the quick changes to them that their legislation brings. As a nation, we must find a way to understand moral capital while also promoting ideas and laws that benefit all sectors of society. This will only happen if we can productively talk across party lines. Um, and then there's like lots of specific stuff about... Um, you know, changes that he would recommend for improving bipartisan collaboration in government, which I didn't, I didn't personally find particularly interesting. But I think this thing of, um, uh, th this is similar to, uh, it, was it the constrained theory of man that you talked about at one point? Well, yeah, what, was, yeah, yeah. what was the deal with that? I think this was uh, Tom, Thomas Sowell, Sowell's um, sort of framework for why liberals and conservatives differ. Um, yeah, I think broadly, uh, the constrained theory of man is that uh, I, uh, maybe I'll just like look it up. I don't want to misstate anything. Like my understanding of constrained theory of man was that it was that man will only do what's morally right if 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 he is forced to by laws and traditions and stuff, which is like a conservative viewpoint. Whereas the liberal liberal viewpoint is the unconstrained theory of man, which is that people will act for the for in, in good ways because people are inherently good and don't need the oppression, the oppressive. Uh, laws and you know traditions and religions that we sometimes have today to govern their behavior um which one did you think was which i thought constrained was conservative and unconstrained was liberal where it's like but it's like so somatic at that point was was my rough definition legit um wait so you, you thought the constrained one was um liberals um no conservatives okay um oh yeah on the wikipedia page for this this book a conflict of visions it says that uh, Jonathan Haidt references uh, this in his book, The Righteous Mind. Oh, uh, so the, okay. the unconstrained vision of man relies heavily on the belief that human nature is essentially good. Uh, those with an unconstrained vision distrust decentralized processes and are impatient with large institutions and systemic processes that constrain human action. Uh, they believe that there is an ideal solution to every problem and that compromise is never acceptable. Um, ultimately, they believe that man is morally perfectible. And so they they think that some people are further along the path of moral development and have overcome self-interest and can therefore act as uh, surrogate decision makers for the rest of society. Um, so that sounds uh, that sounds like liberals. And the constrained vision relies on the belief that human nature is essentially unchanging and that man is naturally inherently self-interested regardless of the best intentions. And so people who have this constrained vision prefer the systematic processes of the rule of law and tradition and they kind of see compromises being essential because um, there's no ideal solutions, only trade-offs. Uh, ultimately, the constrained vision demands checks and balances and refuses to accept that all people could put a, put aside their innate self-interest. I don't think either of these is sort of... Yeah, I mean, I, I never... I didn't end up finishing the book. Yeah, it seems like the unconstrained vision is, is definitely a bit more liberal, but I don't think either of these... I don't think it like perfectly maps onto either of these. Uh, Steven Pinker, in his book, The Blank Slate, thinks that... Uh, Sowell's explanation is the best theory to date about um, these differences between people. Nice. Cool. That's all I had on this front. That was The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt. And yeah, I thought it was interesting because it's like, 
you know, the first time I'd come across this idea of there being these six moral taste receptors and just thought it was kind of cool. It makes me uneasy when you say the idea of there being these six moral taste receptors. As opposed to? That seems like an almost scientific claim when this guy's just come up with a, an interesting framework. I mean, he's a, he's a social scientist and he's done like sort of, he, he, he cites like literally hundreds of studies in the book that where, I mean, like the, the, the point of social science is to, is to come up with these sorts of theories and then, and then find, find like create studies that confirm or reject them. And yeah, like, sure. the way that the way that he describes it was like in, in initially from his research over like 20 years there were, he thought there were five principles, but then they had to like, sort of after another decade of research, they added, added a sixth one because they realized there was actually this thing that wasn't quite explained by the other five and therefore oh, okay. explained by six. So it's like, <laughs> you know, the standard scientific approach, scientific, quote, quote, scientific method where you come up with a theory and then you find evidence to support that theory and you change the theory depending on, depending on the evidence. New moral and, taste receptor dropped. <laughs> exactly. Um, and given that, it, you know, it, 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 it is social science, so to an extent, yeah, it's, 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 not, it's, not, it's not like gravity, but like... Yeah, okay, fine, fine. So, like, have you, so you listened to this a while ago. What, what, what has it changed about sort of the way you live your life? Or... Look, Tamar, every book doesn't have to be a self-help book. God. <laughs> um, it, it hasn't really changed the way I live my life. It just... It, it, it just... It, just it, 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 you yeah, feel like it, it made, made more, more sense of the world or something. Yeah, definitely. Like I, I, okay. I, I, I could feel like as I was listening to it, it's similar to Elephant in the Brain, actually. I could feel that while while listening to it, I was like, oh wow, you know, I'm, I like these sort of seeing connections between things that I didn't previously. And I was like, oh, of course that makes sense. Like this is why this person I know acts like this, and this is why this person I know acts like that. And like you know, obviously there is some level of nuance here, and it doesn't fully explain all human behavior, but it goes. You like the six moral taste receptors go a long way towards uh, explaining why me and my lefty friends have certain moral intuitions and we can't fathom how people on the right could have certain moral intuitions. Whereas this was more like, oh, okay, that's why people on the right think that, you know, uh, respect for authority and the sanctity of marriage and the sanctity of life and the sanctity of the church and the institutions. And, you know, it, it all kind of makes sense. Whereas when you're operating from a you know, the only morality that makes sense is care, harm and liberty oppression. Like you really see absolutely no way in which those people could be talking anything other than BS. Yeah. At, at least that was how I, I, I thought of it before reading this. Yeah, I think just like give it a, you know, creating vocabulary for things is actually quite helpful. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Anyway, if you guys are interested in seeing reading more book summaries like that, check out shortform.com slash Ali. I've linked it in the show notes and you'll get an extended free trial or something like that. It's actually really good. Um, the guy who made this website... Um, Actually, he, he, he and I got on quite well because he, 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 he dropped out of medical school. He was, at, he was at Harvard Medical School doing like the in integrated PhD program within the medical degree. And after a few years of it, he was like, you know what? I think the thing that really interests me is startups. And so he dropped out much to his parents' dismay. <laughs> yeah. So, so we had a bit of a chat about that. But yeah, he's cool. Oh, he's nice. been helping me out on the book because he reads a lot about like productivity and meaning and all this sort of stuff as well. Hmm. That's good. Well, this has been a dry episode you've kind of just like read out a bunch of you've read out a summary of the book <laughs> and there hasn't been too much commentary or anything yeah whatever yeah i feel like it would have been better if i'd if I'd had had actual notes that i took um but in the absence of that i don't know you guys what do you reckon um do drop us an email slash message us on our slack community if you're part of that about what you thought about this sort of thing um you know one thing i'd 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 be i'd generally be more interested in doing is 
like for example taking a random book that i haven't read like i don't know anti-fragile and then we just sort of go through the summary like blind almost and be like okay cool this this kind of makes sense i think that would be i think that could be interesting uh, especially on a week where we don't we we haven't rocked up with something specific to discuss yeah that could be worth a go yeah equally like for like for example is find a blog post on less wrong and just kind of read through it on the podcast um yeah i think there's there's lots of interesting stuff there that i haven't gone around to cool should we uh call it a day any any insights of the week i feel like it's been a while since we've done that oh yeah we haven't done insights of the week for a while i guess i gave a little insight about the all-in podcast i'd really recommend the all-in podcast to anyone listening do check it out nice my insight is that so I've, i've i've recently realized the power of just doodling on my ipad uh on procreate which is this drawing app for the ipad with the apple pencil yep. and so now like e last night sheen and i were watching the final two episodes of chernobyl fantastic tv show if you haven't seen it oh, cool. uh, we watched the first three like two days ago and i find that when i'm watching tv maybe this is just my neurosis speaking but like i find it very hard to like not to do something concurrently uh and <laughs> what because it being unproductive uh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think it's that. I just feel like I always have, I always have excess energy where it's like if I'm just sitting on, on the couch watching a TV show, it just sort of feels like a large chunk of my, I don't know, energy is just being, being wasted away. That and sounds so like usually, a productivity thing if you're saying the word wasting. Um, I mean, I, mean I, I don't think a productivity thing is, is necessarily bad. But like I've, I've, I've had this for years. It's like, you know, in school when I'd be watching TV shows on my laptop, you know, every, every day after school, I'd be shuffling a deck of cards or like doing a coin twirl or trying to trying to do stuff like that. Even now when I'm watching like YouTube videos on my desk, I'll often be kind of flicking a pen in between my fingers. Mm. And maybe I should just learn to, in fact, I'm, I'm doing like a 30 days of meditation experiment as of like today, uh, <laughs> where I should just learn to sit still. But, um, and given that I'm now, I'm all about kind of being myself and not being uh, shackled by, by, by what society tells me to do. I've realized the power of doodling on, on my iPad Pro while, while watching TV. Oh, it's great because cool. like when you're learning art, as as I've been doing since since January, I'm I'm not, I'm having lessons three times a week. But it's like when when trying to draw, when doing figure drawing or life drawing, uh, like drawing pictures of people, there's a lot of like you know like the standard standard poses that you get is is like a bu- <laughs> a, a bunch of like butt naked people in like various poses with like like their arms in different poses or holding a sword or holding a gun, um, or wait, wait, you know, wait, lying wait, on the floor. I, wait, where can I sign up? Uh, I'll send you I'll send you a zip file. <laughs> Um, so this was how I, how 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 I was practicing. But what I realized is that um, a sl- I don't know if I'm if I'm admitting something here that that I shouldn't be admitting. But what I realized is that, is that I could just go on the models subreddit and find models in like bikinis and use them as like my references for drawing sketches, rather than you know these like fully butt naked <laughs> art poses that you get on like an artcourse.com. Um, right. <laughs> and that's that's actually that's been a surprising amount of fun <laughs> so i've Man, so i made like this is, a, this is an I'm, incredible I'm, amount of rationalization <laughs> yeah so i actually i'm trying to learn art i'm having lessons three times a week and you know i think the best <laughs> the best approach is to go on the models subreddit to look at bikini models <laughs> <laughs> oh my god <laughs> it's actually great i love it and i did about 10 of them yesterday um sketches that is and yeah it was good while watching Chernobyl, <laughs> so would, would recommend. It's right. also a very oh, easy I, I, thing. It's also a very easy thing to do when you're on a phone call with someone. So I had a phone call with my friend Chris yesterday for about an hour, and I was just kind of sitting there doodling on the iPad and did like two or three sketches in that time. It was just sort of something nice to to be doing while I was talking to him on the AirPods. Yeah, that does sound nice. 
Yeah, I, I, I quite like doodling while doing other things. Like if I have a pen and paper, I'll just kind of be doodling. I used to get told off for that at university, but whatevs. On the topic of TV shows, have you heard of a show called Life's Too Short? No. I watched it this week. It's, it's a Ricky Gervais thing. Um, it's from like 2011. It stars Warwick Davis. You know Warwick Davis? Oh, yeah. Yeah, so Warwick, Warwick is the main character. Warwick was uh, an Ewok in some, in some Star Wars films. And he was Professor Flitwick in uh, Harry Potter. I feel like he, w- he might have also been some of the goblins. I think he was some of the goblins as well. Yeah. Like the Gringotts guy or whatever and stuff. Yeah. Anyway, Warwick Davis sort of is a dwarf British actor. Um, and the show is just ridiculously funny. Like it is, <laughs> it is unbelievable. I think I discovered it because I, th- there's, there's clips, some clips on YouTube. Um, and there's, there's a few like famous guest stars in some of the episodes. Like there's a, there's a clip with Liam Neeson in it, which is like ridiculously funny. There's, a, there's another sort of um, clip with Helena Bonham Carter, Carter in it. Uh, which is also ridiculously fun. I think I sent you that. Did you watch it? You did, yes. Uh, it was all right. <laughs> Mate, no, no. You, you've, you've got to try this show. It's seven episodes. I, I think the only annoying thing about Ricky Gervais' things is that there's never enough episodes. Like, Derek was an absolute masterpiece. There's only two seasons. This has one season of seven episodes, and it is, it is like, the funniest thing. Like, <laughs> I think I've I've had longer laughs in this than anything else like there'll be there'll be a joke where i then like have to pause the thing just to laugh for like 20 seconds straight because it's just so funny and yeah i i can't remember the last show that was quite as like mag funny in terms of magnitude but it's it's also kind of depressing it's it's depressing in the same way that the office is depressing when you think about it Mm. my mom and i are watching the office with dinner these days and i i think she just i mean we find it funny but i think she just gets really sad because like yeah michael's plights is just very yeah very sad and in the same mm-hmm. way like the, the the whole show centers around warwick being like a, a washed up sort of no longer celebrity that no one's ever heard of and he's he's still trying to like hold on to the fact that he was in a couple of films and there's like a running joke that you know he was in harry potter and he was in star wars but his face wasn't actually shown there was it was always covered in like a costume um, and he's always yeah he's trying to like he's trying to yeah, act like he's some big man Hollywood star and he's still got it and all this stuff when actually like no one knows who he is anymore and his wife is divorcing him and he's lost all his money. It's, yeah, it's like, it's depressing at its core, but, but it is very, very funny. Anyway, life's too short. Um, check it out. You can buy season one on YouTube for a tenner. That's what I did. Um, yeah, we'll link to a couple of the clips. Alrighty. Um, life's too short dude just just buy season one on youtube for a tenner and watch it with sheen it's just so good it's half an hour in episodes there's seven episodes it's like just just watch watch an episode tonight come on all right fine we'll watch an episode tonight sheen wasn't a fan of the helena bonham carter clip for the record but we'll we'll we'll, we'll nah, give her episode one grow a shot it'll grow yeah, 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 yeah fine cool do you want to read out a review and then we'll call it a day all right this is an interesting review uh, it's a five-star review but the the title is seen better days all right and now, look, just, I'm not reading out this review just to like dunk on you. I just, I'm genuinely curious okay. to hear your thoughts. Uh, it's from Yasmin A in Great Britain. Yasmin says, Tamor is the main reason I still occasionally listen to this podcast. Sometimes Ali makes it seem like this is an extension of his YouTube channel, which isn't the content I expected to find here. The podcast was so much better at the beginning. There was more balance, which made for a really interesting listen. Now, not so much, unfortunately. I do wish Ali would try and find some sort of distinction between the content here and his other work projects to avoid overlap. What do you think about that? Um, yeah, fair play. Um, hmm. What do I actually think about that? I mean, our, our analytics show that things like, you know, repurposing a deep dive with Austin Cleon and Noah Kagan gets more downloads and more plays than a random episode of You and Me. 
Um, and the, and that's very much like more my YouTube style content. I think, hmm. I feel like it's, it's, it's a tricky one because it's like the, the stuff I do on YouTube is basically an extension of me. And that's what I show up to with the podcast. Like that's who I show up to the podcast as. And I have no real interest in slash or slash. Um, I, 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 I don't really have a, a desire to, I don't know, bucket myself in a way that, okay, on YouTube, I'm only going to talk about productivity and on the podcast, I'm only going to talk about social interaction. Like both are very much areas that I'm interested in. Hmm. And I think that's like one of the, it's one of the nice things, but also one of the annoying things about doing this sort of internet guru, personal brand type stuff where some people will be annoyed when you're not sticking to your lane. And some people will be like, oh my God, please don't stick to your lane. Please just kind of, you know, talk about whatever you like because it's interesting. Yeah. And that's something that all YouTubers have to struggle with. It's like, well, the, I, I know that the more I define my niche and the more I stick to my lane, the, 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 the more my channel will grow because that's just how the algorithm works. But it's not really what I want to do. So, I mean, yeah, I take the point that there's not much of a separation between <laughs> who I am on my channel and who I am on the podcast. I would say the reason for that is that because it's just me and I try to be my authentic self in both, both domains. But hey, that's fine. It's not everyone's cup of tea. I wonder if that's why I'm actually not, I'm not too sure what she's getting at. Like she might be getting at the fact that occasionally we miss a week and we just upload one of your YouTube interview type things with some other online. You know, that's group. not what she's getting at. You don't think that's what she's getting at? No, she's saying that the, 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 the content, like she, she listens to the podcast for you. Like the content on it seems to be, I, I guess. I mean, if, if we look, we at, an if we look about, at recent episodes, like we, yeah. if you look at recent episodes, like I don't think they've been too productivity guru to be honest i mean if if that is actually like your your brand or something let's look at the list of recent episodes time to open air audio and have it not work on me i mean i'm just using using spotify to be honest all right so we had an episode recently should we be trying to build online audience i think that was fine trying to be content oh, i guess wrong. i guess that that, i guess should should we be building an online audience if you looked at looked at the title you'd be like oh at least content no no she actually left the card the review before we published that episode oh i see like okay i guess there was the one with Neil about optimizing for a meaningful life. Maybe that sort of... Yeah, a bit that could have been productivity. Productivity guru. Yeah. I thought probing questions to reflect on 2020. Uh, maybe what do we want yeah. from life? Existential question. How authentic are we? I, mean, I don't know. I in, think apart from... In the, the case, I thought all of these were reasonable episodes. episodes so. <laughs> yeah, apart from the in-between episodes, I don't think these are like... No, I'm pretty, I'm pretty sensitive to like, um, you know, the creative vision here. And yeah, I think in-between episodes definitely go against the creative vision of, of, the, of the podcast, at least for me. I don't think I don't think the recent episodes have too much. Yeah, I don't know, Yasmin. If you're listening, drop us an email. I'm curious to hear what you think. Because um, yeah, I mean, yeah, I think the the creative vision I have in mind for the podcast is quite different to sort of productivity guru type stuff. So um, I'm curious if that's actually how things are coming across. Anyway, um, thanks for listening. Sorry, this was a bit of a dry episode. Um, yeah, send us your feedback. Don't leave a bad review though. Send it via email if it's bad. Send it in the app store if it's good. Exactly. That's oh, important to see. Tweet at us or post on our Slack. Yeah, I'd, yeah we are, I'd be interested. On like, YouTube, I think. I, do you guys actually think that the, the, this was a, a dry episode? Because I think often we're not the best judges for what is a good ep- episode and when what isn't. Um, yeah. yeah. I, I think the, the nice thing about the, up, uploading the episodes to YouTube now is that there are actually comments. And like, there's no, there's no real way to engage, to like post comments and engage with podcasts like as podcasts you can leave a review yeah. on the store but that's it you can do that once um whereas i do i, I you know i check the youtube comments every couple of days and i do quite like it um so yeah the search for us on youtube 
um and leave a comment there if you have like feedback about specific episodes and stuff uh, i think that'd be great cool all right thanks for listening we'll see you next week goodbye That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. If you like this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or on the Apple Podcasts website if you're not using an iPhone. There's a link in the show notes. If you've got any thoughts on this episode or any ideas for new podcast topics, we'd love to get an audio message from you with your conundrum, question, or just anything that we could discuss. Yeah, if you're up for having your voice played on the podcast and your question being the springboard for our discussion, email us an audio file mp3 or voice note to hi at notoverthinking.com. If you've got thoughts but you'd rather not have your voice played publicly, that's fine as well. Tweet or DM us at N Overthinking on Twitter, please. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.